Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the LSE. Welcome to this event sponsored by the Department of Media and Communications. My name is Robin Mansell, and I'm privileged to be the head of the department. Um, it's my very great privilege to welcome Professor Sarah Bene Weiser this evening. Sarah is Vice President and Director of the School of Communication at the University of Southern California at the Annenberg School of Communication. She's also professor in the, uh, she's, is professor in the School of Communication at USC Annenberg and holds an, uh, an appointment in the Department of American Studies and Ethnicity, and hugely important for us. We welcome Sarah as our incoming head of department, who starts in August. Sarah's interests include feminist theory, race in the media, youth culture, popular and consumer culture, and citizenship and national identity. Her 2012 book, Authentic, The Politics of Ambivalence in a Brand Culture, explored brand culture and political possibility through the lens of self-branding, winning the 2012 International Communications Association Outstanding Book Award. She is author or editor of many other works with intriguing titles like Commodity Activism, The Most Beautiful Girl in the World, and Kids Rule, Nickelodeon and Consumer Citizenship. She's author of lots of published articles, and she has a book forthcoming, the title of which is called um, Empowerment, Feminism, and Popular Misogyny. And this clearly speaks to her theme this evening. So a very big welcome, Sarah. We also have, from the Department of Media and Communication, Dr. Shani Orgad as our discussant this evening. She is author of a book on media representation and global imagination. She has a special interest in gender and media issues and is also author of a large number of papers, some of which critique neoliberal culture and its consequences, so she is ideally placed to comment on Sarah's lecture this evening. I think we can look forward to a very timely and engaged debate. I have a couple of um, messages for you that are somewhat administrative. Uh, first of all, for those of you who are Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event, I think, is on the screen somewhere. It's LSE Feminism. Could you please put your phones on silent so that you don't disrupt the event? You should know that tonight's event is being recorded, and it will be available later on podcast. This event will be followed by a drinks reception outside the hall, and we hope all of you will join us. At the reception, you may be approached by LSE students who are part of the Raising and Giving Society. They'll be collecting money for the homeless charity called Shelter, at a target of £5,000, so if you could support that, then that would be really wonderful. Um, that's all from me, so please join me in welcoming Sarah again. Thank you, Robin, for that introduction. I, I do feel like, since this is being recorded, I need to say that um, I'm not the vice president um, of Annenberg, because I think the vice president would probably take some offense to that. I'm the vice dean. We just make these titles up at uh, USC, so I don't actually know the difference between them. But, um, but uh, thank you for that introduction. Um, um, and thank you for coming up with this idea in the first place, Robin. Um, and thank you to Shani for being willing to be a respondent tonight. I do want to 
give out a special thanks to Michael Etheridge, who made um, you know, possible all of the details for me getting here, um, as well as James Dealey, who's up there, who um, made this awesome flyer without knowing that I was actually going to be talking about feminist T-shirts tonight. So uh, thank you for that. Um, and to all of you, thank you for coming out in this weather. Um, I almost slipped on the way here. I, I think I'm going to have to get some London shoes very soon. Um, I also want to thank um, you all for coming out in the middle of a strike. And I consider my talk here tonight as speaking in solidarity with lecturers and support staff across the UK. Um, this, uh, this talk, as, as Robin said, is based on my forthcoming book. It's coming out later this year. Um, and I will say that the observations I'm making tonight are based mainly on my position um, as a scholar in the United States, a scholar of feminism and popular culture. So um, what, um, you know, some of my examples are, are kind of U.S.-based. I do think that much of what I'm talking about is clearly happening um, all around the globe, and I also look forward to next year or next August when I am not positioned in the United States and I'm positioned here to have a different perspective on, on these kinds of things. So I'm going to start by talking about uh, the contemporary moment um, a bit. This is the contemporary moment. <laughs> the clicker doesn't work. It did work. Okay, we'll just do that. Okay. Okay. In, on October 5th, 2017, uh, the New York Times published an article detailing multiple accusations of sexual harassment against Hollywood producer Harvey Weinstein. The Weinstein case mobilized, as I'm sure we all know, hundreds of other stories about, from women about sexual harassment in uh, the workplace and in everyday life which were manifest in the multimedia movement Me Too. As many have pointed out, the phrase Me Too was actually created in 2007 by, Afri by an African-American activist, Tarana Burke, a survivor of sexual assault, who wanted to share her story as a way to connect with other victims, especially women of color. The fact that Burke, the originator of Me Too, has been largely eclipsed by the high-profile, mostly white female celebrities who have come forward and the Weinstein scandal and all of the others that piled up is not insignificant. Time Magazine's 2017 Person of the Year was named the Silence Breakers, featuring women who have come forward to expose sexual harassers and predators. Yet Burke, who created the movement, was inside the pages, not featured on the cover. The mainstream media has covered the Me Too story expansively, which is a crucial, crucial important, and an important move. But the stories have often been about the powerful men who were accused or the celebrity women who accused them. Not surprisingly, there was soon a commercial market for Me Too, ranging from cookies to jewelry to clothing, as well as new apps and other technologies that attempt to document workplace sexual harassment. So in other words, while the public awareness of Me Too has helped to reveal how widespread and normative sexual harassment is, it is also more focused on very visible figures. I say this not to dismiss the accusations, any of them, in any way. <clears throat> Rather, I want to point out that while Me Too existed in the early 2000s as a mechanism for building intersectional feminist community, 
It became highly visible only under the mediated logics of a new kind of popular feminism. The Me Too movement is expressed on those media platforms that easily lend themselves to commodification and simplification, those industries that provide platforms of visibility, such as entertainment and the news media, already designed and scripted for any mode of spectacular spotlight. So it's hard to make sense of these because they're so, and this, as I'm sure you know, is a tiny, tiny sliver of the, story, of the avalanche of stories that came out of Me Too. And they, they offer different things. So some of them are about sexual harassment in Hollywood. Some of them about sexual harassment in politics, the Senate. Some of them about how women of color are treated differently in the Me Too movement. My, one of my favorite is the Vice story on, on the side, which is Vice News came out with a story about Me Too, and then a week later, uh, the New York Times came out with a story about how the Vice News um, director, of, uh, one of the key persons in leadership, was fired because of sexual harassment allegations. So these, it's hard to make sense of all these different expressions of Me Too. And, and in part, it's just because of the sheer volume of these expressions that are manifest across and circulated within multiple media platforms. Also, though, in everyday conversations, in dating life, in classrooms. <clears throat> Not to mention it's the subject of debate in institutions from government to media corporations to universities as these institutions scramble to make a more effective mechanism to address this issue, since I'm not sure what the kind of mode is here at the LSE, but the online sexual harassment training that I take every year has clearly not resolved the issue. So Me Too is, without a doubt, part of a broader context of popular feminism. And this is the Webster, Merriam-Webster's Dictionary uh, Word of the Year in 2017, which was feminism. Popular feminism means different things. This, the talk today is my attempt to, to define and describe a particular set of social and economic conditions that I am naming popular feminism. Part of these social conditions is the fact that it seems like everywhere you turn in North America and Europe, there is an expression of feminism on a T-shirt, in a movie, in the lyrics of a pop song, in an inspirational Instagram post, <clears throat> in an acceptance speech at an award ceremony, in a flower or a pin worn on a lapel. All of this has encouraged me to feel, like many others, both inspired and finally supported by a broad public. But I also think it's important to, criti to critically analyze popular feminism, and I guide my analysis with some key questions. Who can we think of as a popular feminist? Is it Emma Watson? Is it this young woman, clearly the face of empowerment over here, that models for H&M? Um, is it people who code? Um, is, it, is it the girls who participate in Dove's self-esteem uh, project? Who, who, who can we think of as a popular feminist, and what are the goals of popular feminism? And again, there are different versions of popular feminism. I'm certainly not trying to be exhaustive here, but I am going to talk today about a particular set of conditions, including the media and entertainment industries that comprise a highly visible form of popular feminism. So popular feminism refers in part to practices and conditions that are accessible to a broad public, from organizing marches to hashtag activism to commodities. It's popular in part because of the media forms on which it circulates. 
feminist messages of gender inequality, body positivity, equal pay for equal work, the normalization of sexual harassment, the critique of that normalization, self-confidence, and others. These circulate and achieve visibility on multiple media platforms such as uh, Facebook and Google, but also in entertainment industries such as the TV and film industry. Now, of course, the architecture of many of these popular media platforms is capitalist and corporate. That means that the social and economic conditions for popular feminism are in part about technologies and the underpinning logics of those technologies. So while I'm not collapsing media platforms like Facebook or Google with entertainment industries like the film industry or the TV industry, I am suggesting that they have a shared supporting logic. For example, as we have seen historically, specific messages of feminism are often incorporated into advertising and marketing, and contemporary popular feminism is certainly no different. One after another, major global companies, from Verizon to Dove to Audi, have churned out emotional advertising campaigns, urging us to pay closer attention to girls and the opportunities available to them, or the lack thereof. As Anna Elias, Shani Orgad, Christina Scharf, and Rosalind Gill have pointed out, there is a whole industry in love your body and self-confidence discourses, as well as beauty apps, which implore women to be confident and to love themselves, and most of all, to be entrepreneurial and self-optimizing. And these messages about confidence, um, as they have written, are everywhere. I did, as part of the research for this book, I did take an online um, course and self-love <laughs> um, it, from everyday feminism. It was a hundred bucks. Um, I don't think that I graduated with honors, but um, I did learn some things about what self-love means in terms of popular feminism. There are hundreds of organizations, corporate and nonprofit, dedicated to teaching girls and women to code and enter the technology industries. Learning to code has become a hot new industry itself. Social media, as we know, has exploded with feminist campaigns, from Yes All Women to Not Okay to Of Course Me Too. Blogs and websites like Black Girl Dangerous, Feministing, Feminist Current, Crunk Feminist Collective, and Jezebel are filled with passionate defenses and celebrations of feminism and exhortations towards feminist and anti-racist activism. There are apps for bystanders for sexual harassment, as well as other mediated networks designed to alert women to sexual predators. And last, but certainly not least, Feminist ideology, as we know, is sartorial. Etsy and others offer feminist tank tops, buttons, and entire wardrobes. Fast fashion, like H&M, offers shirt, crop tops that say empower women. Uh, high fashion has also taken note in the 2017 collection. Christine Dior uh, created a $710 T-shirt that proclaimed we should all be feminists at least those of us who can afford a $710 t-shirt. Um, Prabal Gurung, more modestly priced version at only $195, stated this is what a feminist looks like. So while all this feminism is really bolstering in so many ways, it has also given me pause to think about what are the conditions, what are the social and economic conditions that define and describe it. And for me, it has made sense to kind of think about this um, these varied manifestations of popular feminism within a framework of vision and visibility. <clears throat> so vision, 
Um, if we take a minute to <clears throat> consider the title of my talk, which is The Vision of Empowerment, what do I mean by vision here? Vision clearly means different things for different people. One a very popular understanding of vision is a vision statement, uh, usually thought of as the imagined or future direction of an organization, a company, an academic department. I did, I have to say, have a retreat with my faculty in California two months ago, two months ago called a visioning retreat, <laughs> where about 50 professors in a room tried to come up with a coherent vision. <laughs> Needless to say, there's nothing on our website, um, and, um, and don't worry, we're not going to be doing that, I don't think. Um, um, uh, so there's, that's you know, creating a vision statement. Um, and in this sense, having a vision is something aspirational, right? A vision is future-oriented. It works as a guide for an organization or a community for a certain direction, right? Rather than a comment on its current state. Visions are also what we ascribe to leaders of, of uh, political and social movements as visionaries, those who are aspirational thinkers, imagining a different future. And we also talk about people who have visions, those who see things that aren't there, that see a future that has yet to be realized. For me, I consider the vision of feminist empowerment as one that describes a future because we are not there yet. That, is, that aspires for something different. Vision, for me, has a politics behind it. It is about collective struggle. And in this way, a, a vision of feminist empowerment is not individual. It is individual in part, but it's not only individual. It is collective. It is not about platitudes, but about deep structure. It is not only tied to economic success, but also to challenging patriarchy. But because vision is imagined and aspirational and affective, it's also intangible. We can't actually see what a vision is, but we can only imagine it. So we work, we have different mechanisms to make visions tangible. And for me, one of the uh, kind of most efficient way to make a vision tangible is through visibility. This is just a basic dictionary definition of visibility, the state of being able to see or be seen, the degree to which something has attracted general attention or prominence. Visibility is important for a vision to be seen. But we also have to think about what the mechanisms of visibility are. How is a vision seen? What, through what channels? What I see with much of popular feminism is that the media economy where it circulates the most centrally often ends up shaping and constraining its vision. This means that we need to think about the kind of attention we pay to popular feminism. What version of feminism becomes prominent? That is, while the rising visibility of a safely affirmational feminism is in many ways exhilarating for us, it also often eclipses a feminist critique of structure. The mainstreaming of feminism often constricts its circulation, as if seeing or purchasing feminism and contributing to its visibility is the same thing as changing patriarchal structures. Now, it's important to note that I am I'm thinking of these logics as a set of, of social conditions for popular feminism here, but I think the implications of these logics is not just for feminism, but for social movements in general. 
These conditions have been called things like platform capitalism, which imply the emptying or flattening out of the content of meaning, emphasizing instead the endless traffic and circulation of this content. And part of this means, as we all know, that there's a contemporary obsession with numbers, with metrics, with likes, with followers, right? Given the predominance of digital media platforms that are predicated on numerical accumulation, where their business depends on these numbers, then to make oneself visible or to express oneself, it can also be dependent on an accumulation of numbers, This is what Jose Van Dyke calls the popularity principle, where despite differences among media platforms, they are all invested, as she says, quote, in the same values or principles, popularity, hierarchical ranking, quick growth, large traffic volumes, fast turnovers, and personalized recommendations. For me, these social and economic conditions comprise what I call an economy of visibility, an economy which can work to constrain and constrict the vision of feminism. So communication scholars and media scholars and critical race theorists and feminist theorists have long been invested in studying the politics of visibility. The politics of visibility usually describes the process of making visible a political category, something like gender or race, that is and has been historically marginalized in the media, in the law, and policy, and so on. This process involves what is simultaneously a category, visibility, and a qualifier, politics, that together can articulate a political identity or a political goal. Here, the goal is that the coupling of politics and visibility can be productive of something else, such as social change or or a political goal, something that exceeds its visibility, the vision of its politics. Politics here is a descriptor of the practices of visibility. And the politics of visibility have been long important and continues to be for marginalized communities. To demand visibility is to demand to be seen, to matter, to recognize oneself in dominant culture. The insistence of marginalized and disenfranchised communities, women, racial minorities, non-heteronormative communities, refugees, immigrants, the working class, the insistence to be seen has been crucial to an understanding and an expansion of rights for those communities. And Lily Huliarki has written brilliantly about this. Of course, not all politics of visibility result in social change. The point here is that visibility is understood as leading to something, as part of a political struggle, as a route to a vision. In the current media environment, however, while the politics of visibility are still important, economies of visibility increasingly structure not just our mediascapes, but also our cultural and economic practices and our daily lives. In the contemporary media and digital moment, media outlets and systems can easily absorb the visualization of of basically any experience. Economies of visibility fundamentally shift politics of visibility so that visibility becomes the end rather than a means to an end. Getting seen can then become all there is. In this way, some political visions have transformed their very logics from the inside out so that visibility is what matters rather than the structural ground on and through which the vision has been constructed. For example, wearing a T-shirt that says, 
this is what a feminist looks like, transmutes the political logic of what it means to be a feminist as a political subjectivity invested in, in challenging gender inequities into what a feminist looks like, her visual or his visual representation. Visibility in this context can be restructured then to stop functioning as a qualifier to politics. The t-shirt is the politics. The politics are contained within the visibility. Visual representation becomes the beginning and the end of political action. Within this constraining framework of visibility, things like race and gender are then apparently self-sufficient. They're absorbent. They're therefore enough on their own. Identifying oneself as someone who looks like a feminist becomes sufficient political action. The identification and the announcement of one's visibility is both the radical move and the end in itself. So economies of vis visibility do not describe the, a political process, but rather assume that visibility itself has been absorbed into politics. Indeed, that absorption is the political. I should say here that I have a T-shirt that says this is what a feminist looks like. I just want to make sure that's clear. I've got lots of feminist T-shirts. So it's not about owning or wearing the T-shirt. It's about thinking about what the mechanisms are for circulating that particular image. Um, so popular feminism circulates within this economy of visibility and in this way is part of the larger attention economy where it's sheer accessibility through shared images, likes, clicks, followers, retweets, and, and so on is a key component to its popularity. Popular feminism engages in a feedback loop where it is more popular when it is more visible, which then authorizes it to create an ever-increasing visibility. Invisibility is not a static thing. It has to be in a constant state of growth, which then can become an end into itself. So in other words, the available structures for popular feminism's visibility in the current moment are usually those of the dominant centers of power, <clears throat> media companies, <clears throat> corporations, the technology industries. <clears throat> Excuse me. In this sense... Within the context of popular feminism, visibility often becomes synonymous with trending, whether in the mainstream news media or on social media. To trend is a different process of visibility than to agitate, to be seen, in order to be granted basic rights. Trending is about recognition and about making oneself available for normalization, as Herman Gray has argued. The visibility that fuels trending is a demand to be recognized in an attention economy. And in fact, the fact that Merriam-Webster chose feminism as the word of the year, it's really great in many ways. I was very happy to see that. However, I also think that we need to remember how Merriam-Webster chooses feminism as its word of the year. It chooses it because of how many times the word has been searched, right? How many times the word has been clicked. Um, that doesn't necessarily, as we know, and when I get into the darker part of my talk, we'll see, that doesn't necessarily imp imply a support of feminism. It may, but we don't know, because it's just about the recognition of the word. 
Again, the attention economy is definitely not unique to popular feminism, but these are the conditions within which this version of popular feminism is articulated and enacted. These are the logics that are taken as given, the ground upon which many of our communication practices are formed. So these logics of monetization and accumulation that underpin these communication practices, including popular feminism, can condition some of the ways our sociality takes shape. But to return to popular feminism, again, let's think about Me Too for another moment. A month or so ago, and I, have, I don't know if this circulated in, in London as it, much as it did in the U.S., but a month or so ago, a story that detailed one woman's experience on a date with actor Aziz Ansari was published on a little-known website, babe.net, which actually is at, at Origins in Cambridge, U.K. Um, the content comes largely from students in the U.K. and the U.S., Despite the fact that this was a little-known website, this story garnered incredible visibility. Dozens of pieces were written about it. News stories covered it. It was the topic in my classes. It was the topic at dinner. Um, it was a skit on Saturday Night Live, right? Babe.net's response to this visibility was not to take a deeper dive to think about what is this, what is happening here, why, why such visibility, but rather to focus on the visibility itself. And so their next tweet was about how many stories had picked up their story. So this is that feedback loop that I'm talking about. This, these, this is an example, I think, of what happens or what can happen to a vision in a media context where most circuits of visibility are driven by politic, uh, I'm sorry, pro profit, competition, and consumers. Here, simply becoming visible does not guarantee that identity categories such as race or gender or class will somehow be unfettered from sexism, misogyny, racism, and homophobia. Now, the reason why I think popular feminism circulates most easily in an economy of visibility is that there's a connection between a popular feminist narrative and visibility in a very specific way. The popular feminisms that circulate most easily within, within this economy are those that require little labor to be understood, little labor of interpretation. They rely on familiar narratives, ones that are easy to encapsulate in an image, a slogan, or a product. One of these familiar narratives that I'm going to talk about now is a uh, has, that has really found traction is the narrative of injury and capacity. And here, and I'll get more into this, I see injury and capacity circulating as part of a neoliberal logic that recognizes injury only to then propose a solution, a solution that is almost often found through individual capacity. So popular feminism, as we know, is in many ways a, a kind of newly forged avowal of feminism. It explicitly embraces feminist values and ideologies, which, you know, for someone like me who's been tracking this her entire career, is amazing and incredible, right? It recognizes the injury of sexism, the vulnerability of women in a sexist context, shifting away from sort of a vague girl power slogan of post-feminism. The discourses of confidence, self-esteem, body positivity, and competence that form so much of popular feminism signal this kind of injury. Women are not confident because they have been encouraged to believe that they are always less than men. 
They are women have low self-esteem and a negative body image because they are constantly judged and evaluated by social norms. In most careers, but especially those in science, technology, engineering, and math, women have been encouraged to believe themselves as biologically inferior to men. So the popular feminist recognition of these injuries and that vast gender inequities still organize our cultural, economic, and political worlds is really important. But the popular feminist solution to overcome these injuries is problematic. It is most often by realizing one's individual capacity. In this way, popular feminism responds to the injuries caused by centuries of being undervalued as citizens and overvalued as objectified bodies. Capacity, though, is realized through individual capacity as a way to suture that wound or to overcome that injury. So in this way, the popular feminist messages that become the most visible in an economy of visibility are those that reflect what Catherine Rottenberg has called neoliberal feminism. And as Rottenberg has argued, neoliberal feminism is one in which the values and assumptions of neoliberalism, especially ever-expanding markets, entrepreneurialism, and a focus on individual capacity are embraced, not challenged by feminism. So capacity here has a distinctly neoliberal inflection. There is no critique of the ways that capitalist success might be due to the gender divisions of labor that are absolutely required by capitalism itself. Rather, it's up to individual women to believe that they can be confident, beautiful, competent. It is up to individual women to buy into the effective politics of neoliberal feminism, entrepreneurial spirit, resilience, gumption. So this familiar narrative of injury and capacity focuses on the injury women experience as a result of living in structural sexism. But addressing these structural injuries is up to the individual. Capacity is often reduced to the ability to be seen or to express yourself in your singularity. Now, the dynamic of injury, and these are just some of the ways and some of the examples from popular feminism. Confidence, the confidence discourses, wear it like makeup, it's the best, a girl's best accessory, these kinds of things are seen as uh, up to an individual girl or woman to, to get over a lack of self-confidence that is caused by structural sex- sexism. Um, This dynamic of injury and capacity is not just taken up by popular feminism, though. It is also um, uh, taken up in force by what I have called popular misogyny. Popular uh, misogyny is popular in the contemporary moment um, for the same reasons that feminism has become popular. It is expressed in a practice on multiple media platforms. It attracts other like-minded groups and individuals, and it manifests in a terrain of struggle with competing demands for power. These um, are just a few examples. The Red Pill, if you don't know, is a subreddit of the, of the social media site Reddit that, it encourages, it, that is explicitly and violently anti-feminist and anti-woman. Um, MRA is Men's Rights Activist Network.org, which is a coalition of different men's rights organizations. This is a um, top five most popular post from a really wonderful website called The Return of Kings. Um, uh, as you can see, and um, this is just one, one a tweet out of so many that I could have chosen from um, the misogynist head of state, Donald Trump. 
Um, um, so this, this, these are just kind of different examples of, of where we see popular misogyny. And for me, popular misogyny is in some ways, um, it follows a conventional definition of the term, a basic hatred of women. But I also want to make a more nuanced case for popular misogyny as an instrumentalization of women as objects, where women's, women are a means to an end, a systematic devaluing and dehumanizing of women. Popular misogyny is, like popular feminism, networked. It is an interconnection of nodes and all forms of media and everyday practice. And misogyny is not only expressed and practiced by men, women are also an important part of this formation. And of course, misogyny is also challenged and critiqued by men and women, even as is often expressed as an invisible norm. So at a time when there is a dramatic increase in organizations uh, that are dedicated to empowerment and equality for girls and women, there is a similar increase in men's rights organization and meninism, a series of discourses and practices about the apparent difficulties of being a man in the 21st century amidst all this feminism. At a time when girls' self-esteem and sexual agency is the focus of new corporate industries, federal funding, and educational programs, there seems to be, there is what seems to be an explosion of rape and sexual assault cases on college campuses and elsewhere, including the Me Too movement, as well as the cultural and media trope of the pickup artists and seduction communities, which are a set of guides on how to seduce women who would not otherwise be interested, as Rachel O'Neill has brilliantly analyzed. At a time when women and girls are told to lean in and demand more for themselves in the workplace, there is a dramatic uptick in the number of reproductive rights that have been formally retracted. At a time when there is a robust consumer market for girls and women, emphasizing confidence and self-love, there is a growing market in girls, as we see in the harrowing increase in sexual um, and human trafficking around the globe. And at a time when girls are encouraged to learn to code and become a central part of the world of technology and STEM fields, there are online misogynistic movements like Gamergate, um, where men threaten women with death and rape simply for their participation in the technological spheres. So feminist logics of competence, confidence, self-esteem, and sexual agency are rerouted by popular misogyny, which then uses these logics to center men as discriminated against and injured by women, but by feminists in particular, and in need of recuperation and reparation and newfound capacity. If successful, this rerouting works to shore up rather than to challenge structural sexism and racism. So the contemporary networked media context in which popular feminism and misogyny are expressed makes for a particular manifestation of the struggle between these two that has existed for centuries. While network culture has provided a context for a transfigured feminist politics, it also has provided a context for misogyny to twist and distort the popular in ways that seem new to the contemporary era. Now, clearly, the intensification of misogyny in the contemporary moment is not just about technology. It's also, in part, a reaction to the culture-wide circulation and embrace of feminism 
every time feminism gains broad traction, every time it spills beyond what are routinely dismissed as niched feminist enclaves, the forces of the status quo position it as a peril or a, a serious risk. And skirmishes ensue between those determined to challenge the normative and those determined to maintain it. And I think that's part of what we're seeing here. Like popular feminism, much of the logic of popular misogyny revolves around these twin discourses of injury and capacity. Expressions of popular misogyny often rely upon the idea that men have been injured by women. Men are seen to be denied rights because women have gained them. Men are no longer confident because women are more confident. Men have lost jobs and power because women have entered into previously male-dominated realms, regardless of how slowly. So men's rights organizations and other forms of popular misogyny dedicate themselves to restoring the capacity of men, the restoration and recuperation of a traditional heteronormative masculinity and patriarchy itself. This is um, another post from The Return of Kings. There's just so many wonderful posts there. This is a, um, a uh, online campaign with a really bad tagline um, that is... Um, that was kind of mocking the UN woman's uh, slide that I showed before. And these are just some other examples for, about mis popular misogyny. So the continued activism for the rights uh, for and the cultural value of women and non-white people is understood by dominant groups as a series of repeated injuries. This mirroring of popular feminism by popular misogyny is like a funhouse mirror in which widespread gender and racial inequities are transfigured to become the source of injury for men, especially white men. And here is just one example of this kind of funhouse mirror. This is a campaign by a Canadian women's rights group um, that, uh, in Vancouver who created a series of poster campaigns and social media about date rape um, with, a sec with a, um, the tagline, don't be that guy, sex without consent equals sexual assault. <clears throat> the Edmonton, uh, also in Canada, Edmonton Men's Rights Organization took the very same image and created a counter campaign that put it, where they put that up in bars and restaurants called Don't Be That Girl, which is basically saying that girl, women and girls who, um, who accuse men of rape are making false accusations. To do it is a crime, they said. So it's literally the same image in this kind of twisted and distorted way. <clears throat> So protection of rights for those who are disenfranchised, any kind of protection, regardless of how ineffective, is understood by men's rights, many men's rights organizations, as the source of their injury, a protection that disrupts an equal playing field and reverts it back to one that is yet again unequal, but this time it is men who are disadvantaged. And this is often seen as a backlash to, to popular feminism, and surely it is that. But I also think that it's more than that. I think that backlash implies a linear direction. Misogyny lashes back at feminism. In contrast, popular networked misogyny lashes in all directions, finding expression in obvious and in not so obvious ways. Okay, so I've discussed the ways that I think the tropes of injury and capacity are marshaled within popular feminism and popular misogyny, how they circulate fairly easily within an economy of visibility. This last part of my talk 
um, I want to think through another effective response to injury, and that is rage. The Me Too movement, with which I began this talk, has forced all of us to confront female rage, a rage at the injury of being harassed and assaulted, a rage at not being believed, at being called hysterical and out of control. The most con uh, conventional definition of rage is violent, uncontrollable anger. It's also used as a verb. One can rage against something one hates. It can mean something out of control, like a raging fire. And rage can also mean something very popular, as in all the rage. Some, when something, a person, or a place, or a thing has the utmost popularity. Because women's anger has been explained away for so many years as an inappropriate female emotion, in the current moment when women are insisting that their rage and anger be taken seriously and dealt with, when rage and anger are not only threatening to spill over, but they have done exactly that, some parts of society and culture seem to be at a loss as to which of these definitions to apply. As feminist Lori Penny has said, female anger is taboo and with good reason. If we ever spoke about it directly in numbers too big to dismiss, one or two things might have to change. So in the last few minutes of this talk, I want to speak about female anger and rage directly within this context of injury and capacity um, that I've been talking about. The injury that is incurred by simply living within patriarchy and systemic sexism is often acknowledged by popular feminism, as I've argued. It's also often met with rage. But because female rage is taboo and is what Angela McRobbie has called illegible, it is channeled into something that can contain it and lessen its force or trivialize it, even if in the name of capacity. As McRobbie points out, the rage against inequality, of patriarchy, of just being a girl or a woman is illegible. It can't be read so that it's contained in the body or in the ever-growing markets that posit an unattainable ideal as one's personal responsibility and goal. And this process of not being able to read rage is, as McRobbie puts it, psychic turbulence. So in this moment of Me Too and this avalanche of stories, every day I, I wake up and I get, I, there's another new story, I find myself thinking about Ill illegible rage and psychic turbulence a lot. What is the psychic turbulence in a moment that is about feminism itself? The risk of rage threatening to spill out of its frame is constantly at play with the Me Too movement. In a familiar manner, there are mechanisms and moves to make red rage illegible, uh, and in the process, sort of take the rage out so it's not so threatening. So while popular feminism embraces feminist values, it does this, as Rosalind Gill has argued, without anger or rage, or as Sarah Ahmed has written about recently, without complaining. So what are the conditions of this legibility then? Under what conditions are we or our, or our rage rendered legible? Again, if you think about the conditions of visibility being constrained, one efficient way to take the rage out of feminist rage is to commodify it, to make it into a thing, a metric with clear borders and boundaries. It is to understand rage as all the rage. 
We see this with Me Too products, with Time's Up pins, with clothing, with jewelry. And again, I'm not objecting to these per se because I do have some of them, um, but I am saying that they are mechanisms to make rage legible. This is a cookie here. Um, and, and that came out right after, it was a PR stunt, it came out right after the Weinstein story, and the, the M there is the Weinstein logo flipped. Um, and this is just a really unfortunate, like, Christmas sweater. Um, so you can get these everywhere. Um, so, I, you know, again, I'm not objecting to these, but I'm saying that we need to think about how they are mechanisms to make rage legible. Rage gets caught up in that feedback loop of visibility where it becomes an end in itself rather than a route to something else. But commodification is not the only process at work here, and here's the note I'd like to leave you on. One of the most hopeful manifestations of Me Too, Me Too for Me has been those sheer numbers, those numbers of women forcing people to deal with the collectivity of it all. I'd like us to focus on those numbers, the numbers of people, rather than the numbers of clicks. As Rebecca Solnit put it a few months ago, the stories of Me Too were, had been historically forced outside the economy of visibility, <clears throat> obscured by not only dominant patriarchal norms that punished women for coming forward, but also the endless popular feminist exhortations for women to just be confident, to get over it, to be resilient. As Solnit put it, rendering these stories invisible continued, quote, until something broke, until journalists went fishing for the stories that had been hidden in plain sight, and the stories poured forth about publishers, restaurateurs, directors, famous writers, famous artists, famous political organizers. We know these stories, end quote. <clears throat> Last month, in January of 2018, rage did spill out of its frame in a torrent, in a Michigan courtroom in the United States where the doctor who worked for Michigan State University and USA Gymnastics, Larry Nasser, was on trial for sexually assaulting more than 260 girls and women who were in his care, most of them teenagers. In an unusual move, the judge in this case, Rosemary Aquilina, allowed women to tell their stories to the court and to Nasser himself, and in all, 150 women came forward and gave their testimony. So I want to play just one quick, just one minute, of Allie Reisman, who is a two-time Olympic gymnast. She's 23, um, to, to show you how, what this looked like. Your Honor, thank you for the opportunity to make this statement here today. And thank you for pro providing the time and flexibility for all the other brave survivors to make their statement. Each survivor deserves to be heard equally. I didn't think I would be here today. I was scared and nervous. It wasn't until I started watching the impact statements from the other brave survivors that I realized I too needed <clears throat> to be here. Larry, you do realize now that we, this group of women you so heartlessly abused over such a long period of time, are now a force and you are nothing. The tables have turned, Larry. We are here, we have our voices, and we are not going anywhere. And now, Larry, it's your turn to listen to me. 
So Raceman's words, along with others in that courtroom, reminds us that sometimes rage does spill out of its frame. It can't be easily contained. The testimonies of the gymnast were broadcast on some of the same platforms, media platforms that I just discussed in the economy of visibility. This was on CNN. So it's not necessarily the platforms, right? But here, the visibility that the judge allowed is one that exceeds an economy of visibility. It spills over. To be all the rage is to have a popular feminism that is mainly concerned with individual women not a collective politics. It is the feminism of neoliberalism in a context where gender equality is assumed to be possible with only a few obstacles standing in the way, easily resolved through corporate and commercial intervention. It is a feminism that is bounded by an antisocial neoliberalism, which not only tolerates but expects individual women to be the targets of individual men's sexual manipulation and violence. It is this, in this neoliberal context that we are witnessing the transformation of popular feminism, a feminism that is all the rage, into the hateful rage of misogyny. What we need, I think, is a different sort of transformation, one that is not transactional, one that transfigures the rage of popularity into a powerful rage like this one, <clears throat> an intersectional collective rage directed at a racist and sexist structure. All of those numbers of women who are coming forward need more than to be counted as part of a metrics, an accumulation that becomes its own feedback loop. The Me Too movement is not just a response to structural misogyny and sexism, it is a response to the limitations of the visibility of popular feminism. In other words, how can feminism enact real structural critiques without relying on visibility? These stories emerge because of structural misogyny. So I think we now need to recognize that the solidarity that occurs within the telling of these stories is about a structural feminism. It may be popular, but it's not necessarily commoditized. If that's true, then we need a different kind of transformation. We need to come up with an alternative form for vi of visibility. We need, as Ali Raisman said, to be a force, or as Emma Gonzalez the 17-year-old um, girl who is a student at, at uh, Stoneman Douglas High School at yet another mass shooting in the United States two weeks ago has been yelling and screaming in her rage and saying things to the president that you would never assume that a 17-year-old girl would say. Her rage is spilling over. That's the kind of lasting structural feminist rage I think we need. And for me, that's a vision of empowerment. Thanks. Thanks very much, um, Sarah. Well, I think we're supposed to put on the next slide, so we just don't have to. Okay. <laughs> Good suggestion. Um, well, I want to start by just echoing Robin and say how uh, fortunate I feel, and I think we are all in the department, how excited we are about Sarah joining our department next year, hoping that you don't have second thoughts leaving sunny California for what's happening here outside. I'm just hoping you don't have second thoughts after this presentation. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, before I respond to your fascinating uh, argument, I'd like to start by saying that for me, Sarah's talk demonstrates scholarship at its very best. Um, Sarah's analysis of the social economic conditions that define profoundly 
and profoundly constrained popular feminism um, is not only timely, but it's also urgent. It's animated by a deep concern with the operations of power and with all the new forms of inequality and injustice. And how these not just exist, but how might they be disrupted, challenged, and reimagined. Um, Sarah manages to conceptualize and explain, I think, what many of us might feel when we consume these images and signs, um, when we observe them, and perhaps not always are able to articulate why they make us feel in certain ways. So uh, Sarah's work indeed is deeply critical and yet extremely accessible. And I do uh, recognize that accessible has become a compliment for academic work, but a colleague once told me, can you imagine walking to a restaurant that's been recommended that the food is edible? Um, so <laughs> nevertheless, <laughs> I think your work is accessible in the most, you know, a positive and complementary way. And finally, I do want to say that in a time that, uh, of increasing demands for academic research to reconnect with public life and bring its analysis to bear on society, it seems to me that Sarah's research is truly exemplary. So with this, I want to um, offer a few thoughts, pose a few questions. My first question relates to where you've ended your talk with Ali Reisman's testimony as an example of rage spilling out of the economy of visibility. And you suggested that the visibility that the judge allowed for Reisman's story uh, to exceed the econ economy of visibility, in your words. Um, but I did want to ask you, um, and I wonder, as you noted, we watched it on CNN, or many of us watch it maybe on YouTube, which are pertinent capitalist and corporate media platforms. And indeed, we wouldn't have been able to access Reisman's story other than through its mediated representation, which circulates within the very economy that you described. Um, so the video focuses on Reisman, a young, white, heterosexual, um, and beautiful public figure. Um, the video is accessible to a broad public, and like YouTube videos, it's, of course, dependent and determined by hierarchical ranking, by large traffic volume, by personalized recommendations, and so on. So the question to, that I want to pose is what makes, in this case, Reisman's testimony different from any other popular feminist instances that actually outlaw rage and anger? And more so in the light of um, Ali Reisman's uh, recent participation in the uh, swimsuit uh, Sports Illustrated issue. For those of you who don't know Sports Illustrated, it's a men's, American men's sports magazine, which is produced for the male gaze. Um, and so I wonder how we can make sense of Reisman's rage, given her participation in this current issue, where she's completely nude with confidence type of um, slogans uh, painted on her body, like trust yourself, live for you. Um, and in the light of her participation in the same issue last year, in highly sexualized poses, um, half nude, or almost completely nude. Um, in other words, under what conditions more broadly, if any, can rage and other negative political affects spill over, not outside the economy, but within the highly commodified, popular, popularity-driven mediated environment? So that's leads me to my second question, which is still on the theme of rage, uh, with which I've been also preoccupied in my own work. 
Um, and I follow uh, you, following Angela McCrobie, who draws on Judith Butler, um, in, say, in, in her argument that female rage can become legible only when women have the social and cultural and economic conditions that enable them to create, and I cite here McRobbie, to create a social space which appears capable of refusing the narrow confines of gender intelligibility, those confines that are promoted by popular feminism. So Angela McRobbie argues that such spaces of legible rage are not just sites for es- escapist, hedonistic peer group bonding. They're also, and crucially, spaces which produce and permit more fluid identities that are less set and secured in straight jacket, the straight jacket of gender. So I wanted to ask you if you could reflect on this theme in relation to the current moment of popular feminism, and especially Me Too. And do you think that the rage that has been unleashed by the explosion of stories of sexual abuse and harassment and pain has allowed critique not just of inequality patriarchy, but in the critique of inequality patriarchy and their inextricable relations with heteronormativity? Um, so if rage for McCrobie is about spaces that question um, gender confines and allow spaces for gender fluidity, have the stories that uh, exposed hidden sexism and violence remained confined largely within heterosexual um, and heteronormative frame. This lead me, leads me to ask about, uh, to, to pose kind of a third uh, question, um, which your thought-provoking talk really made me think about, which is the alternative spaces to the economy of visibility and their relationship to the mainstreaming of feminism. And you mentioned at the beginning of your talk that um, hashtag MeToo originated a decade ago when it was set up as an, as an activist group by uh, Tarana Burke. But it wasn't in the spotlight until October 2017 when uh, actress Alyssa Milano came across the phrase and unaware of its origins, which is significant, I think, urged survivors of sexual harassment to use it. At the same time, Burke and her colleagues established a powerful and evidently sustainable network and activist groups outside the economy of visibility for over a decade, uh, mainly of young working class women of color. And interestingly, I think Burke uh, has told recently that her organization also has T-shirts, but they don't sell them. They give them as gifts. Um, Now, Burke's organization is, of course, the exception because the majority remain invisible and outside the popularity context, context. But at the same time, many of these very groups capitalize on the digital affordances of media platforms and on platform capitalism to extend their reach and to bolster their important work they do. And furthermore, Burke and the co-founder of Black Lives Matters have endorsed the popular Me Too movement, um, saying that it gives visibility in ways that they never could, saying that privilege used in this way is a good thing. There was a big article interview with Burke saying that. So how then, I'm, I wanted to ask you, how do you conceptualize the relationship between these groups and the spaces of popular feminism? And does the moment that they become visible and popular, like Burke's organization, necessarily imply that they're being automatically hollowed out of their political force? I suppose it's a bigger question for other social movements as well, but I was wanted to ask you to reflect on it. Um, I have two more questions. Um, you don't have to address all of them. I thought I'd offer more and you can pick up. This question is about the darker side of your um, 
um, talk, Popular Misogyny. And as you said, like popular feminism, popular misogyny is subject to and obeys the same logic. And you showed us how for feminism, the economy of visibility reconfigures its meaning so as to make it highly individualized, commodified, and therefore hollowing it, uh, its critique of structural inequalities and justice. Yet the same economy, the very same logics and conditions seems to bolster the politics of misogyny. So I wonder if you can say more about how and why the very same logic seems to produce opposite political effects. On the one hand, individualizing and weakening feminism's fight against structural inequalities, while at the very same time ostensibly reproducing and cementing structures of sexism. Um, this is something I'd love to hear more. And my final comment um, concerns ambivalence, a concept that I know has been central to your previous book, Authentic TM, uh, one that has um, animated much of my own thinking as well. And more specifically, my question concerns ambivalence as a position vis-a-vis the object we study and the object we teach about. Um, And while you've offered us a bold critique of the troubling conditions that define and constrict popular feminism, and as you said, perhaps other social movements as well, you simultaneously, and in my mind admirably, managed to recognize, recognize your own effective attachment to popular feminism and its objects and its meanings. And it reminds me very, uh, very much of Lorraine Berlant's insistence on ambivalence as a constructive force. And Berlant writes how in its strongest version, ambivalence is, quote, an impossibility that cannot be overcome by synthesis, will, or better reason, end quote. I do think... I think very much like you that as feminist researchers holding on to ambivalence in our relations to contemporary feminism and its various iterations and appropriation is crucial, not least because it refuses the very logic of neoliberal feminism. In other words, if we hold on to this ambivalence, we try at least to refuse to absorb and collapse the contradictions about the range of possible responses to conditions of injustice. It also compels us to continuously contest and rework the meaning of feminism. And it significantly, and I think we talk a lot about it with our students, it significantly frees us from the position of the distant objective researcher that doesn't have any effective response to what she studies. But at the same time, underpinning so much of the work that we're seeing now coming out, important work about both neoliberalism and feminism, is a really urgent impulse to critique the pernicious conditions of neoliberalism, the intensification of inequality and injustice and cruelty in uncompromising and in non-ambivalent terms. So I wonder how and whether you think these two orientations can um, be reconciled. In other words, I describe perhaps to, uh, I observe two very different orientations of research currently around feminism and neoliberalism, one which insists on ambivalence the other one that would perhaps argue we can't afford being ambivalent. We must um, be as uncompromising and unambivalent as possible in relation to this cruel um, conditions and consequences. So I invite you to <coughs> respond whether these t- in two impulses, or two orientations, should or can be reconciled. Thank you. Um, I think uh, 
I think I'm going to answer the easier questions. Um, um, no, I think I'm going to just answer a few of those now because um, I think we have to end promptly at 8, and so I want to make sure if there are people in the audience who have questions that you'll have a chance to ask. Um, um, and so how I'm going to do this is I'm going to combine 1, 2, and 3, and 5 um, um, uh, questions um, because I think actually they all speak to ambivalence in a particular way. For me, my feminist project is about ambivalence. Um, I do think, I, I think that you, you mentioned Berlant, Lauren Berlant, who talks about how, um, you know, when you, when you think about ambivalence, it's seen as a negative thing, like you can't make up your mind, you're wishy-washy. Um, it's seen as a failure, like you can't be certain about something. Um, I actually, and she's critiquing that, I, I agree with that critique. I also um, don't think that there's always a certainty. I will say that I'm not ambivalent about popular misogyny. Um, for that, um, I'm pretty, I'm a very determined certainty. Um, but I think that, you know, some of your earlier questions about what makes uh, Reisman's testimony different and the fact that she did this in, in, in the courtroom um, and then also posed in, in, in uh, the swimsuit edition. I will say Sports Illustrated is not necessarily a magazine for the male gaze, but that issue certainly is. It is created in its, its most popular um, issue throughout the year. Um, um, and also thinking, you know, thinking about that in terms of the, the third question, which is alternative, what are some of alternative spaces of visibility? The reason why I think, you're absolutely right, that Raisman is conventionally beautiful, she's heteronormative, she's a white woman, she's privileged, she has a platform. Um, one of the things that I thought was very interesting about this is that this was just one of 150 testimonies. And so I just put that one out there, but I've watched <laughs> so many of them, and um, to see those numbers in a way that isn't like, you know, some of the celebrities who came forward in the Me Too, to see young women come forward, you know, with these wrenching stories, the, the, the collectivity of it felt for me like rage was sort of spill, uh, spilling over in that sense. I also will just say that Larry Nassar, the man who was accused, was asked the judge for them to stop because it was causing him mental distress. Yes, which was very unfortunate for Larry Nassar. Um, but um, the judge said no, right? And he then said in the same letter, when he said, this is causing me mental distress, he said, this is a media circus, right? And so it's, it's this effort to turn this into a critique of the economy of visibility, right? A media circus. Um, and the judge, you know, said, I, you know, this is, I'm going to let this happen because I think it exceeded that economy in a certain kind of way. The fact that she also posed in Sports Illustrated, and Shanice right, if you've seen this new Sports Illustrated issue, the swimsuit issue, it's really awful. Um, in, in the sense that it's called a Me Too issue. So it's, it's about, you know, it's like women posing naked, like she said, with the words, like confidence words, and so this is like Sports Illustrated is taking on Me Too. That is the feedback loop that I'm talking about. It's like, you know, how, you know, a, a conventionally beautiful athlete naked with the words trust yourself written on her body is part of this Me Too movement. It's very, it's very hard to reconcile. I think, though, that one doesn't cancel out the other. That is one individual. That's, the, that's this whole media kind of um, uh, context that we're talking about. And that's why I think we need to pay attention 
to the mechanisms of circulation really carefully to the technologies and the politics. So the fact that she um, you know, poses uh, nude in Sports Illustrated doesn't undermine the fact that she was abused for years. And it doesn't undermine necessarily those numbers of women. It's, and I don't really have an easy answer to how you hold these things together you know, and think about a political project. Um, but I will say, and then I'll stop and let people, other people ask questions, that related to that, what are alternative spaces of visibility? You're absolutely right. Neither one of those is. CNN, YouTube, Sports Illustrated, those are not alternative spaces of visibility. But this, these stories have all of us talking in a way that I, have, I haven't quite seen before at dinner table. Again, these, these conversations, everyday mundane activities, not wearing a Me Too, Me Too shirt, but talking to my students about it, having you know, the students talk to each other about this. Um, you know, talking to children. I will say I have a 16-year-old daughter who, like the other day, was like, can we please not talk about consent today? <laughs> no. We're going to talk about consent today and every day, you know, so, so uh, this is what you get, right? Um, um, so but those are the kinds of conversation that 16-year-olds, Emma Gonzalez is 17, and she's, you know, you know they're, 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 it feels, it feels um, like, you know, some momentum is building. And part of me, too, is that I write about this stuff because I'm hopeful for a future. And so I think that there's some times when I just need to hold on to, to some of these things, and I really feel effectively kind of pulled in by this, this sort of outpouring of rage that I'm seeing. Okay, the floor is open. Thank you, Shanine. Thank you, Sarah. Um, I think you have a lot of challenging questions. I think we should, because of the time, try to take two or three in a row and then respond. So, hands in the air. When you do respond, please say who you are and wait for the microphone to reach you. Um, uh, I think that that uh, you know um, 
there's like a, people talk about dictionary definition of feminism as being equality between men and women. That's actually not my definition of feminism. My definition of feminism is about value um, and how it is that different subjectivities, different bodies um, are, are valued differently. And, and my feminist project is to address that. But I think that, you know, it's in some ways easy, it can be easy for um, a, someone who's conservative to embrace that value of equality, right? And, and, and usually right-wing feminists, at least the ones that I um, have read, kind of um, go in a direction of, we have equal rights, we have agency, we are empowered, why are you being a victim? Right? Why are you being so? It's sort of is that kind of that injury and capacity dynamic that I talked about. I think that conservative feminism is really focused on the fact that capacity has been realized um, and achieved. And so, what are we blathering on about, right? Um, and so, uh, you know, and, and there's been some interesting cases, and we can talk later. Katie Royfe is an um, interesting kind of conservative feminist that's been made in the news in the U.S. lately. But that's what I would say um, about that. Um, to your question, it's, a, it's an excellent question. Um, you're, you're, you're very right. If, if, if rage, if female rage is illegible, if it can't be read, then the rage of women of color especially can't be read, right? Um, and, and it's partly because of the way, that same thing about cultural value. Women of color have kind of been constructed and positioned and penalized and diminished as always already being angry, as always already being too emotional, too hysterical, too out of control. Um, and so that you're, you know, part of this, and this goes back to Shanice's um, question about ambivalence and about the, the way in which the economy of visibility, the spotlight in that, in that economy, it falls on different groups in different ways. And, and it's true, it's, you know, when, when rap music in the United States became something that was a problem, it was because white suburban kids were listening to it, right? It wasn't a problem, that's when we had parental advisory for, you know, boards and everything. It wasn't a problem when communities of color were listening to it. So there's, a, you know, it's when it poses a threat, you know, into the nation, to a community, or, you know, to, in, in some kind of way that I think it becomes something that the spotlight then is turned on, and that happens with white feminism. Uh, the woman with the hat there. <coughs> Hi, thank you for the talk. Um, I have a question about that. This probably doesn't have an answer, but regarding um, consent, and I'm studying gender and feminism and intersectionality, and then you start thinking about the way, so I'm in my early 30s, and I know there are people older than me and probably even younger, you trace it back to dating and how we're first conditioned to interact with men or boys, the whole process is about, well, can I touch her knee? Can I touch her shoulder? What can I get away with? And us going, okay, that's okay, that's okay. And there's not really this discussion. It's more about like constantly pushing. And that's kind of the structure that we grow up with, which can then become very blurry when you're in college or older, you had alcohol, you had social pressure, Consent starts to become this thing that we no longer voice. It's more like allow, and is that even really what you want and you want? Like, and then you're lost of power completely. So 
How do you start to change that for women who are you know, over 18 now, but then also young boys and young girls? How do you start to adjust that uh, social conditioning so it is more equal? And then I just want to point out, I'm not trying to be devil's advocate here, but I think in a room full of mostly women, where there's three rows of reserved seats, the first row has only four white men. Shut up and not listen to me. Um, so, like in the long run, I just found that if I just sort of 
very calmly and like tried to be more aggressive about it, even though I was talking kind of victim of feminism, which really angered me. He in the moment like now listens to me. So I was wondering if that should be worth sort of stepping back, taking the rage out of it to make it more legible if I don't know, if like we should change our ways to make it I don't know, more listened to problems or if we should sort of ignore that and say, no, we deserve to be angry. Um, I should be listened to you either way. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that, no, it's a good question and, and we, we, uh, we live in this world, right? We, we live in this world, we are social beings, we have to deal with with you know our social interactions all the time, um, uh, I think that a, a lot of men have talked to me. My friends, a lot of people have this experience where they have said, "Oh my God, you know, like I'm so uncomfortable now. I don't know if you know I should if, should I rethink you know what I've done in the past? Should I talk to people about it? I you know what, how do I act?" I don't really care, actually. I mean, I think that, I mean, I care, but I think that it's okay to be uncomfortable. And, you know, there's a way in which we can recognize our own victim, as, victim status, or we can recognize inequalities and structural dynamics of power, and we can see where we are positioned in them. Um, to build coalition and to build collectivity, it's painful. It's not easy, and it's not about being comfortable, and and that doesn't mean you have to be angry and aggressive all the time, right? I and mean, there's times where I'm just like, I just don't want to think about this today. I just want to watch Real Housewives, you know, or something. And I do that all the time. But you know, so so it's not. It doesn't have to be a constant and consistent affective mechanism. But I think that yes. We should be angry, and yes, we should be uncomfortable. And I don't think that change happens from us just saying, you know what, it's okay, we'll figure this out, right? We're not figuring it out. And that's why, again, I'm focusing and why this, these kind of rage-filled moments mean so much to me, especially from young women, you know, who have been told over and over again that they are, you know, hysterical, that they're out of control. You know, I think that we have underestimated, Sonia Livingston, I think, would probably agree with me, underestimated teenagers for a long time, especially teenage girls, right? I don't think we should underestimate them anymore. I think we should take them and take their affective feelings and of rage and think about what we can do with that rather than explain it away as hormones or, you know, um, just being hysterical. So, thank you. Um, I guess in closing, when I think about what you said, the central most, the biggest question on my mind has to do with what you were just needing to touch on, which is when rage starts to exceed itself, how does that become sustainable through time? And some of the answers have been about the individual, but when you elevate that to the societal level, how does that become sustainable through time? And I'm not asking the answer to to elaborate in the future when you're really here. So join with me in thanking Sarah.